Hello everyone, welcome back to Appetite for Distraction. I'm Martin. I write a newsletter called Music X. I'm and you can find me on Twitter at the in the morning. Ah, that's new. That's a new introduction. I like it. Yeah, I mix it up. I do lots of things. I know, but it's it's cool. It's cool. Today we are very happy that we have Ray Isla with us. She's a music artist, a singer-songwriter living in Seattle in the USA. I saw her perform at this side event during NFT London, and I was quite blown away by how good you really are. I had heard that from people. You're an amazing musician, and we're glad to have you here. Now, what we usually do is we kickstart the conversation by talking to people about how they got into Web3, but actually we want to take a step further back with you before, before we go there and ask you to talk to us a little bit about your career before Web3. I love that question. I'm like, yes, I get to talk about life before Web3. I did have a life before Web3. It's hard to remember that. But yeah, I got into Web3 about a year and a half ago. I've been doing music professionally for like between 10 to 15 years, depending on how you count it. And I started playing music when I was three and I'm turning 30 in August. So I've been, I've had quite a lot happen before Web3. And basically, yeah, I started playing classical cello when I was very young and I played for 10 years. It was really strict. I hated it. I was forced to play. But now, of course, I'm like, thank you, parents, because I got this musical knowledge that has bled into other aspects of my career. And when I was finally allowed to quit, I was like, I'm not quitting music. I just, I want to play piano and I want to do what I want. So I started playing piano and that became my vessel to write songs. Like I, I still write songs, like reading into the piano and playing the piano. What age did you start to play the piano? I think I played cello for 10 years. So around 12 or 13. Yeah, we had a piano in the house. We did not have a TV in our house, which I realize now is like really weird. Most people did. So the piano was like the central aspect of the house and I was drawn to it. I just wanted to be at it. So I taught myself to play and then started writing songs with piano. And then that led to, oh, can I have a voice lesson? And then I ended up going to Berklee College of Music on a vocal scholarship and studied music business and then moved to New York and lived there for five years, really built up my career as a live performing artist, doing my own music, playing bigger venues starting to sell out clubs which is hard to do it takes a long time to get there you all still do, doing this by yourself or were you getting help or something no, like that i think i've always had help i've always had a mentorship i've always had supporters and patrons and these like people that come in and out of my life that have moved the needle in meaningful ways but when i was in school i was actually in a band it was called radcliffe hall you won't you won't know it unfortunately but we had an indie deal and I was, I was more of a hired gun. I did some composition, but we got this record deal and I got to see from a safe distance the reality of having a record deal, which is that they didn't actually do anything for us. And the leader of the band spent a ton of money and wasn't able to monetize. And it was just, it was really tough. We got to play South By and CMJ and do all this cool stuff. We opened for Passion Pit. Like you think that those things really matter, but unfortunately she decided to go back to school. And so when I moved to New York and I became a solo artist, I was very certain that was not going to work for me. And I never signed. I had like non-exclusive distro deals and publishing deals and some syncs and stuff like that. But as a live artist, I just was hustling and grinding and harassing my friends to harass their friends to come to shows. I started to have some real success and 
get like big show offers. And when the booking agents start reaching out to you to play the big shows, then like something's happening. But I unfortunately started to have the momentum in about January, February of 2020. So yeah, it all went away. And of course, a lot of those talent buyers left the music industry because they were out of work for so long. That was my career pre-pandemic and pre-Web3. And then I ended up moving to Mexico City to record my album and just survive the pandemic and not stop creating and try to make sense of it all. And then I discovered Web3. So you went from selling out shows in New York, then the pandemic hit, and then you went to Mexico City to record your album. Yeah. Were you trying to stay active online as a musician or as a creator? Is that something you were doing or were you really just, no, I'm going to record my music, I'm going to disappear? I think a bit of both. I think I'd oscillate between I can't be online to I should be online. But during the album process, I was lucky because I had a little bit of online work and the cost of living in Mexico City is reasonable. So I treated the album like my full-time job, which is a luxury that I was never able to afford in New York. I was making music on the weekends, even though I had done music my whole life. But I did do, it's funny, funnily enough, I did a lot of little community building things. Like I used to do a weekly Instagram live show. I did, it was called Patio Performances, where I'd perform on my deck. And then I'd release demos that I would perform. I'd write and perform a new song and then release it onto Bandcamp, which is basically what we're doing with NFTs now, in a way. So I I did stuff like that. I did Twitch streaming a little bit, but I still felt that it was really hard to build audience that way. And I felt like the algorithms were working against me and I just, it didn't feel natural. So I, I didn't prioritize any of that when I was putting the time into really record. Are any of your fans from prior to entering Web3 still hanging on? Are they confused by your shift? Uh, Yes, they're still hanging on. And no, if they're confused, I think I actually feel very lucky because the pandemic happened and everybody ran to their respective places, whether it was staying inside the apartment or moving home with parents or whatever, especially musicians. I saw there, it was chaos. Our industry closed and indie artists like we we're already struggling to get by. So a lot of people moved home or moved out of the country or whatever. The silver lining of that for me as an artist was like, I felt like I was living inauthentically anyway, and I was trying to conquer systems that I hated. A lot of ways we're told to grow in music are systemically incorrect. There's, they're not meant for indie artists, the channels available to us. So I feel like the pandemic was a reset. And then I went miles and drove all over and started collecting rocks and just was like, I'm going to do what I want with my life. And the people who stuck around a lot of people are just trying to survive during that time. So I have a lot of, I have a good amount, I'd say, of true super fans who I've seen follow me to different platforms and they've gotten the merch and they don't understand, not all of them understand the NFT stuff, but they do understand that I've always operated independently and I've always experimented and tried to find ways to support the music. They get that because I set that precedent. And some of them have collected NFTs because I've taught them about it. But now I'm at a moment where I've done Web3 full-time for about a year and a half. I recently moved to Los Angeles like a week ago for the summer. And I'm working on some non-Web3 things and trying to just expand what's been built here. Starting to spend a little time on Instagram. 
I have a collaboration coming out soon on Spotify, which is not Web3, anti-Web3. And those people are coming back because they now know how to engage. Yeah, that makes sense. So that, that brings us to that point. How did you get into Web3? Was it somebody that talked to you about it? Did you find something online? Did you go music first or did you go crypto first? Yeah, it's funny because the first exposure I had to blockchain was in 2018. I think for a couple of reasons. One, my one of my close friends and my brother, they were working for a company under consensus. And I was roommates with my brother. So I just, what's this about? And then I used to throw a lot of events and showcases in New York, not just for me, but for other artists. And I was collaborating with this girl named Tiffany, and we randomly decided to put together a blockchain and music event because everybody was talking about blockchain. We didn't know what it was. Like, even after the event, I still didn't really understand it. But I'm like, we have a friend who has a space. We have a couple friends who know about blockchain and are in music. Let's just make an event, get people together. And a lot of people came, I think, because blockchain was very buzzy. And one of the people that spoke, it's this is funny and full circle. Her name's Alyssa DeRosa. She's former attorney for Parkwood Entertainment, which is Beyonce, among other things. And I was just on the phone with her an hour ago after not speaking for years. And I'm like, so you remember the blockchain event we did? I now know what that is. And this has happened. And she's what? It's funny that you asked that. But that was my first exposure. And then... I think when I was finishing making my album, I woke up and I was like, I need to find a way to make money. I need to progress with my life. And I don't know if it's going to be directly from the music or if it's going to be something else. But I need to search for a way to not be broke anymore, honestly. And so I started looking on job boards and stuff. And I actually ended up going through the process while I was on Twitter listening to Twitter spaces and hearing from artists. I was also going through the process of getting a job. And I got a job offer that I was like, wow, I haven't made this much money in years. And, uh, and it came to this point where I was like, okay, I can either take this job offer and I'll figure out my album at some point, or I can reject the stable income and just see what's going on with Web3. And thank God I chose the latter and just dove headfirst into Web3, started hosting daily Twitter spaces. I was in other people's Twitter spaces all day. I was in discord i was in chats i flew to new york even though like i'd literally use my credit card to fly to new york and put together a music showcase with people i'd met on twitter just dare i say balls to the walls went for it and i think it took me getting that job offer after not earning for so long because of the pandemic because of the stress and it was very hard even before the pandemic to to make a living as an artist I think getting that job offer and being like, wow, I can go on the internet and make my skills look pretty and a stranger will offer me a job and income. If I can do that, then maybe I can do this. It gave me like a boost of confidence, I think, looking back. But I chose the rockier road. (laughs) Steph knows what I mean. Yeah, you obviously know as well. And you were the bolder person. Stop. Yeah. We got a lot of the rock puns here. We're already there. Yeah. And if anyone's listening to this podcast and they understand the Web3 culture, like you really got to go for it and just be present and step back once you put in the time. But if, if you're not Web3 native, it's like being in the grunge scene in Seattle in the 90s. You go to every show. You're in every mosh pit. You're wearing every band t-shirt to build a scene because it needs to happen. 
So what, at what point did you find out about Nifty Music or how did that come on, into your path and what role have they played? One of the first artists that I was exposed to via a Twitter space was now a friend, Violetta Zeroni. And I actually attribute that Twitter space because I think it was the first Twitter space I ever opened up. I didn't know what it was. I just clicked on it, which don't do that at Web3. Click on something you don't know. Twitter spaces are safe. I was searching. I was in this process. I was finishing my record. It was amazing, euphoric, stressful, searching for the next thing. I was very open to the universe. And so when I heard her speak about her journey and saw how similar it was to mine, even though she's this girl from Italy like that I would have never met in my life, it resonated. And it, I heard the right thing at the right time to keep pouring gasoline on that fire. And she was working with Nifty Music with Milo and Robin at the time. And I was very curious about what they were doing because the way they were building her collection and building up momentum, it was working and it was very interesting. Nobody had done it yet. And I guess I hustled my way into getting on some calls with Milo. Milo was very generous with his time, especially in the beginning, because I was like, I don't even know. I was still in the job process. I don't even know if I can do this, but can I have another call, please? He continued to be very generous with this time. And, and I worked with them over the next few months. And then finally, it was like, okay, this is going to be a thing. We did some small drops in August. And then I actually ended up collaborating with some other platforms outside of that program with Nifty Music. And that kind of poured some gasoline on the fire as well. And then ended up launching a big kind of, it has elements of PFP profile picture qualities to it. But the rock collection we launched in November, which is a thousand rocks, it's gamified, it's fun, it's attached to utility, like it's choose your own adventure, and it's for music lovers, raise stands, and rock pounds. And if you put those three together, you get a thousand collectors, or I don't know, are there, there probably aren't a thousand, there's probably people with more than one, but like, how many collectors are there? Right now, I think there's 250. Yeah. And I wouldn't even call, I mean, I think, and myself included, because I'm a raised rock collector, we're not even, we're, you put those things together, you get a big group of freaks in the best way. And music nerds and all of that, we're just, we're obsessed. But honestly, that to that point, the reason I chose a thousand is because of this thousand true fan rule. And my vision for the rocks, as I release other collections and world build, my vision is that the rocks continue to be the foundation of everything. And eventually, you don't need 50 of them. You don't need 20 of them. The utility expands, and there are a 1,000 people that own a 1,000 rocks. So I just want to expand on the whole idea of the 1,000 through fans, because people talk about it all the time. There's also the 100 super fans thing, right, where it's not a 1,000 people that give you 10 bucks, but it's 100 people that give you 100 bucks a month. The, the idea that Kevin Kelly had, right, is you will have 100,000 a year, basically, which is something that you can live off. And the idea behind it is that it's all recurring revenue, right? And one of the things that people always struggle with is how do you actually make it recurring revenue from those same people? You can't keep asking those same people for money over and over again. How is this something that you build into the whole world crafting that you do, for example? I've only been operating in this business model for a year and a half. So I think I'm learning in real time. But the one thing I'm certain of is that you may actually be able to ask some of the same people for money every year because they that's it's a joy, it's a value for them. But you have to keep 
evolving what it is you're offering. I'm not a SaaS model subscription service. I'm not a Dropbox. I'm not, I will hold your pain and internalize it. But (laughs) I'm kidding. But you have to keep evolving. And it's, I think you have to strike a balance because we do know that when you create hype and excitement, like that makes people want to buy. And I think that's okay to an extent. But I think what you should be focused on is more sustained, deep growth and attract people who are interested in that. Because you will burn out if you're just trying to hype yourself up all the time. Because at least for me, the way that I operate my business and the way that I create as an artist is seasonal. Some season I'm like left brain baby and some seasons I'm right. And I try to honor where I'm at. Otherwise, it's not sustainable as a, not even just a career, but a life. So you were talking about how you need to keep evolving, right? How has your relationship with your collectors also already evolved? Or how do you see that evolving over time? I think I can answer the first better because I'm not a, I'm not a fortune teller. But I'll start with the first. Maybe it'll give me some clarity on how I see it evolving in the future. The way that the rock collection is structured is that it's not a, I've decided to attach utility or let's say external rewards beyond being an owner of the music and the art and having access. You don't have to do that. But I think that allows for more world building. And I think it allows for a longer lifespan per collection. Like the rocks, we minted out in primary in December. And obviously there's a whole secondary market which continues to move. And that's great. The royalties help me and more so the project. And then people who bought multiple who can profit that helps them invest in other musicians. Happy world. But the cool thing about attaching utility is that I can reward or incentivize those 250 collectors indefinitely, should I choose, because I know who they are and identify them. One of the utilities, for example, is a weekly Zoom concert for rock holders only, which is actually in a couple hours on Tuesdays. I do them every week and people come every week and it's wonderful. And I talk about life. I tell them weird stuff that happens. I sing songs, some of which they know. As I start a new writing cycle, they'll get to hear that as well, which is amazing. And also another one is that certain collectors are on what's called the hands council. And if you collect all nine hand traits, you're in a secret council where, you know, I tell you everything before anyone else knows, and we can actually make some decisions together for the collection based on where the space is at. And it's a group of diverse, smart, wonderful people who love music. And beyond that, I also had a ring maker make custom Lord of the Rings style silver and garnet rings for everyone, which I shipped out to them. So it's just like the journey continues. Choose your own adventure. And then if you don't want to be as active or you're not able to invest in such a way, having one rock is going to get you free airdrops for my next collection, which will roll out the second phase of my full-length album. Certain people will get free vinyl, which we're only pressing a very small number of. So it's just, you can choose one thing, you can choose multiple. I really built it in a way where being a part of the rocks means being a part of the game or the journey for a year or even a couple of years. Since the blockchain. Or forever. Yeah. Yeah. I you like. can reward people too with how long they've been holding their rock. Well, yeah. It's indefinitely. Again, it's, I really, I think it's how you communicate when you're building up to a big collection and then how you communicate once it's out. It's, I don't want hype. I'm not looking for slippers. I'm looking for the real deal. And I think for the most part, those people have come, which is awesome. Is this where we're going to talk about the Bernie Sanders moment? One of the things that 
a lot of people in the music industry like to talk about is this middle class creator, right? You have Spotify saying that there's increasing amounts of artists who make that sustainable amount of living that is related to that 1,000 through fan theory as well. There's this benchmark of this 100,000 a year thing. How many people do that? How many people get that money out of Spotify? That sort of number of artists is increasing year over year with streaming in general. Do you have a very clear opinion about it? So please share it with us. My Bernie Sanders. I Not to get sidetracked, but I always remember that speech he was doing where the bird landed on his podium. Yes. And I I know this and I'm not American. Exactly. I'm a nature girl and that's like mother nature saying, yes, please. I did post that tweet about having a Bernie Sanders moment. It was a joke, but I think the business model of music NFTs and what we observe can be applied to other business models in the music industry or actually not just the music industry, every industry where we are seeing, and I don't really want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I think we're faced with a crisis of the fact that we've been homogenizing humanity for the purpose of profit and scalability. And like the value that we put on profit and scalability does not actually align with what we need to be happy. I think we've seen in every industry a small number of people able to crack a code to pile a lot of resources and then more and more people being left without any resources and this chasm in the middle. And Web3 has been resilient to that, which is why we're so attracted to it. But I think because the depth of this homogenization is so deep, I think it's starting to permeate Web3 as well. And we're seeing that artists are falling back into a scarcity mindset because they're scared because the market's not good and they're lowering and lowering their pricing, therefore devaluing their music or at least devaluing what they can offer on top of the music and limiting themselves. On the other side, artists are offering one-of-one pieces attached to songs, which is great because they can sell that at a high price point and pay their bills, but it means one person gets the music? That doesn't make any sense. Songs are supposed to be everywhere. And when I started in Web3, there was a, I think because of where the market was at, not just the crypto market, but the economy in general, there was this beautiful sweet spot where you could price your NFTs, price your assets in a way where you could offer the music, you could offer access, and then have a little bit of a treasure chest to continue to offer value and world build. And I've just seen that slipping away. There's the sweet spot of, I would say, in Ethereum pricing between 0.03 to 0.25, which is probably about maybe about 50 to 80 bucks to 400 bucks, something like that. And you could do a scarce collection at that price point, pay your bills, recoup the enormous expenses that go into making music and art, and then have some to work with to actually world build and take it a couple steps further. And that's amazing. And we've seen what's come from that. But because that's been happening less and less, we have to either choose between really affordable music NFTs where we just, here's the music, all right, on to the next, or really expensive one-of-ones. And I don't like to see that happening because I think the best music projects that have actually world-built and actually gone IRL and toured are from the projects that priced in in the middle, which is what I've been really lucky to be able to do and am trying to bring back with my latest drop. And I'm hoping that other artists follow suit. Do you think 
it's been easier for you to stay in that sweet spot because you are part of this cohort of musicians that, that you've all band together. You have a pretty strong following or just I'm just curious because there's I don't see other musicians experimenting with that pricing right now. Everyone's pretty much gone for the scraps, let's say, for the lower priced NFT. That's a good question. I think, yeah, strength in numbers. That's another beautiful thing about Web3 is that you can band up with musicians who have similar values to you. I don't mean the monetary value, but like values in life. And where if you do something and they're doing it, it does signal, oh, that's something that can be done. And you tend to attract people who, you know, who value you in that way. I think it's really tough to set any kind of precedent by yourself. You're just yelling into the void, not just in Web3, but in life. I just think you have to maintain your value. You have to not succumb to the external pressures. And it's much easier to do that when you're working with someone who feels the same. And I think that's why this song with Sammy, Heartbreak Closer, has been doing the sales that it's doing is because it's not one of us, it's two. And it just makes it a little easier to push something and sell something, knowing that it's an uphill battle. I know you don't want to get stuck on the price point, but it is a big thing, right? Especially right now, where it does seem to be, let's go back to as close to zero as we can off of any revenue that comes from a song. And that's very problematic, because I also remember not that long ago, that I was making people enthusiastic that one of the key things that Web3 is bringing to music is that it's a revaluation of the music, right? Because there's people out there who are very happy to pay 30, 40, 50 bucks for a vinyl or an NFT. And that can go up higher as well in some cases. And if we take that away, what are we left with? When you talk about values and when you talk about culture, that sort of takes away quite a, long, a lot from what we thought we were all putting our fist on the table for. I do see people slipping into, and not to oversimplify it, but into a scarcity mindset. And I think that scarcity mindset is just absolutely a product of the times we live in. There is a feeling that there isn't enough. There's a feeling there's not enough food on earth. There's not enough love on the dating apps. There's not enough good music on the streaming platforms or enough friends down the street. And all of that, if I may say, is bullshit. There is enough of everything you need, like objectively. And I only say that so I don't say that in some false positivity way because I didn't used to feel this way. I used to feel that I couldn't get enough of anything that I needed. Sometimes you have to go in a little spiral in a circle in a loop to get the resources you need or leverage one thing or another. Switching gears a little bit. Because you also collect music, right? Oh, yeah. I, have, yeah. I haven't counted, but I think I have hundreds yeah. of music NFTs. Yeah. So what is that like for you? And like, what kind of collector are you? How do you think about that at all? Or do you just collect music that you like? I'll start with an easy answer, which is I absolutely collect from my friends because we have built relationships and I want them to succeed. And I know exactly how it feels to be collected by a friend. So that's like a blind purchase for me. And it's not, oh, I just collect from the same people, but you tend to want to support the people that you talk to every day, right? Just like in a local community. Oh, it's a, Joe's playing at the pub. Let's go support him, whatever. I don't, I don't think too hard about what I collect. I think it's at this stage, because we don't really have a music player in Web3, it's definitely not only based on the song. 
actually sometimes, especially if it's a blind man, I don't even hear the song. But I know that the artist is good because I've heard something of them. I know I, I align with their values because I've heard them speak or I've seen them tweet. And that's what I'm supporting because I'm supporting them existing. And I know that whatever they create is going to help further that existence. And I also hope for the same when somebody supports me. It's almost like I actually post a little video on Instagram, but I'll say this again because it still rings true. Like when I play a song, I don't need you to buy the song I've just played. My value is not in a song or rather a recording or a singular performance of a song. My value is in the intangible that exists around the song and everything that I had to live through to get to the song and everything I'm going to live through afterwards to get the song to you. It's, a, it's about tokenizing and selling the intangible value of a musician. And when you think about it like that, like I'll pay whatever. What, if that artist says that in order for them to exist before, during, and after a song's inception, they need this, if I can afford it, then they'll give them that within reason because I'm an independent musician. But yeah, I, I try not to think about the market and just like anything, I don't overspend just because I made some money and I, that way I have some to buy when the market's a little slower. And I definitely, if there's like a game or someone's trying to reach a milestone, like again, Sammy obviously is a really good friend. We've worked together. I love supporting anything he does because I know everything about him. And he did this drop on sound and he was like, screw it. I am going to beat Snoop Dogg's record. And it was a really powerful and really successful drop because he was like, I'm going to do something that nobody's done. And that's fun. I'm like, yeah, I want the little guy to win. That's a narrative I can get behind. I think I bought like 70. They were lower price point. But I wouldn't normally spend that much money, but I love that creates a fervor for me. So how yeah, did that I, happen? Did he talk to you directly about that? Or were you just hanging out at a chat group where he was talking about it? What was the process? At that time, we're quite close. We've traveled to a lot of these festivals and conventions together. Actually, we've been cohabitating for two weeks because of Heartbreak Closer. I thought, we'll get to that. He just left for Nashville yesterday. So we're like, we're always on the phone. But at that time, we weren't as close. I think I saw him tweet it out. And then I see it in the, I'm a pixelated holder. So I see it in the pixelated chat. And it's, wait a second, what's, people are getting excited. This is like, David and Goliath, everybody wants to invest in that narrative. And then he's relentless. I used to think I was one of the more relentless people because I just, I am relentless. You got to be relentless, but he's more than me. I will say that publicly. And that's scary. He just doesn't, he won't sleep. He'll forget to eat. I'm doxing his living, his living habits. So I shouldn't, he's wonderful and he's very balanced. I think a lot of us have met, a, like I've never met a musician that's constantly working as, as much as he does in the best way. Like he carries his laptop everywhere. He's always checking his Twitter and but proof is in the pudding. He did get close. He got as close as I think anyone is going to get to that record for sure. By far. What's so interesting about this narrative for me is you put a lot of onus on being relentless there and doing all the work and grinding. And there's a kind of implication there that if somebody else would do that, they can get the same. And I actually don't believe that's true. And I'm currently running an experiment in scene building called wild awake which is actually all about not having to do that and doing stuff together and finding that support so that you don't always have to be present because if not everybody can it's just not possible yeah. uh, people will burn out so i don't know is that something that you think about absolutely i actually 
was on a call today onboarding an artist to this world who knows nothing about it. And I told her, because she's seen the way I've worked for the last year and a half. And I told her, I truly hope that nobody does what I did the last year and a half. I do not think it is the right way to work, mostly because it sets unrealistic expectations. I know that I was right place, right time in my life, my journey to be able to commit to something like that. And also I know I have a business mind. I love business. I've tried to fight it. I'm like, I can't be an artist and be businessy. And then of course, now that I've been doing this for 10 years, I'm like, why was I fighting the one thing that could actually help me? I love getting creative. It's an excellent question to ask yourself. Oh yeah. Introspective. And I know that a lot of people don't have business minds. And so they're going to have, a, they're just going to have a totally different run of it. And also you just cannot compare how you want to work, how you want to go about things, what your successes are to somebody else's. It's absolutely impossible because we're all, we've all been on totally different journeys and we have different resources and different brains and different circumstances. Yeah, exactly. All I can say is, yeah, exactly. That's, that's very true. What kind of advice do you give then? It can't just be like, just hang out in Twitter spaces 12 hours a day also because Twitter's dying, but that's another thing. And everybody's hanging out in chat groups and we're all in dark forests and it's a whole different story. But what kind of advice do you give? The process of onboarding an artist is unique to each artist. It's like you have to do his mentorship. Very handholdy. I've used that term before. I do have this one email that I, you could think of it as like a white paper for onboarding an artist to the scene. Of course, the goalpost is always moving. So I don't know if that's relevant anymore because it's a couple months ago. But the call today, for example, I sent a, some notes over and I said, it's okay if you don't understand anything or if you understand 10% or 20%, ingest what you do understand, ignore the rest and ask me some questions. We'll just go back and forth. So today was answering those questions of hers. And again, we peeled another layer of the onion, focusing on the ethos of all this and setting expectations. I actually find that it's best not to start with the technical components unless somebody has like a tech or business background. Because they'll get stuck on that route and they won't be open to receiving like the value system or the things about building community that they already know because you can do it in real life if you want. So I really try to focus on ethos, community. It doesn't have to be what I've done. It can be a quote unquote smaller version of what I've done, but hopefully my knowledge and maybe even some contacts can help them evolve quicker and not have to push so hard. It's good advice. Do you wish somebody would have given that to you? No. <laughs> I am not good at asking for help. And I think I would have rejected it. I did, You know what? But I did have it. I had pockets of mentorship. I think everyone I've come across, even you, Steph, like I really listen when people talk, especially if it's something I'm trying to understand. And so I feel like I've been mentored in a micro way by like many different people. So now I just have all this information in my head and I'm like, that's not fair. I need to give it to other people so they can then go onboard other people. But I, yeah, I am, an, what do they call it? An unbroken horse. And I just, I'm not sure, like a stallion. I'm just, I know myself. I wake up and I'm just like, I'm buzzing around and I'm very stubborn, which helps when you're trying to do something new. I think that's why I was so attracted to Web3. I was like, I'm just going to do it my way. Sometimes it doesn't help. And that's a, a trait that I'm aware of and try to mitigate. 
how does this relate back to uh, because like the past year and a half you've all been full on web3 and now you're going to take some steps back into the kind of traditional music industry how do you see those two things come together on a granular level i don't know i'm learning every single day and i'm like oh that person did this and did that and i think that's the only way to approach it because it's overwhelming if you try to control everything like you post a video you don't know what's going to happen I think the Web3 community, knowing I've got collectors that it doesn't mean they have to collect everything, but I know they have my back and I have theirs. Knowing I have that makes experimenting and investing time potentially fruitlessly in Web2 makes it a lot easier, takes the pressure off. Like we're good. But also like Web2 and Web3, I'm definitely investing time into IRL, playing shows. I'm going to Nashville in a couple of weeks to play a show. I'm in Venice. I want to start hosting a singer-songwriter night here. That stuff I'm really interested in. I'm starting to actually get to make songs for movies. So I just see Web3 as, and again, the rock-solid community, tech or no tech, even if it was like 250 weirdos with actual rocks in our pockets, which we also are, around the world, and we like met up once a year, even if we didn't have any of the technology, that gives me the strength to go out and do other things without it being like, why isn't Instagram working for me? Because you can't rely on that. You shouldn't have to. But it's an experiment. I think it's funny. I used to stress about getting one more view, one more view. And now I have this mindset, I think, because I just don't care that like I know one of my videos is going to go viral. I'm 100% certain. It's so weird. It's total delusion. But it's also true. And I'm just like, I think it's because there's no pressure. What is your take on that, Steph? I think it's interesting because I often see tweets that proclaim things like musicians need to know how to community build. And I laugh at that stance because there is no better community builder than a musician. You build a fandom. Every musician has built a fandom, whether it's in social media, IRL, and other places. And it does take a little bit of delusion and confidence to just say it's going to happen no matter what. So I do admire it. And like I said, I agree with that. You are all great community builders. You have that experience and that expertise. And so it's one of the reasons why I'm bullish on music NFT specifically more so than any other NFTs, because I don't know of artists that have this community around them historically forever. That's never really happened. I'm excited. And I don't know, I think keep doing there's so many there's so many insane ways for things to go viral nowadays we all know the crazy story from Hudson Mohawk last year yeah on reddit that was such out of left field like no one could have expected that story to happen so who knows yeah keep that delusion alive right well thank you I will (laughs) it's and I think that bringing it back to earth a little bit like the more things you feel confident in the more different veins of your business or your career that you feel delusional in, something will break. That's why I'm like, Web3, yes, we got it. Let's try Web2. Let's try stink licensing. Let's get the touring back. Just all fire at all cylinders, knowing that if one breaks, they all do. Yeah. But you need, it's okay, if I get a little tangent but now I'm thinking about this. I, something, this like mental exercise I made during the pandemic when I was very anxious and just always, I'm not doing anything right. I'm stressed. I feel a failure. I made this, I was like this, I can't feel this way anymore. It's suffocating. So I made this little drawing, which I still do. 
it's rocks. Of course. <laughs> no, it's now that I look back, it's called the Self Canyon and Life Pillars. And instead of just thinking it's all on the self and I am failing, I am doing this. If you think about the self and your sense of self, it's actually, I picture it as a very thin strip of canyon with a big drop, which is okay unless the wind blows, which it does, because there's internal battles you have to face and it's going to blow you to the right and the left. And if you don't have aspects of your life solid, you're going to fall. And, but also you can't just say life is just one thing you stand on. So I separated my life into eight pillars. And then I'd wake up in the morning and if I was feeling really anxious, I'd be like, let's do a pillar check-in. Where's my physical health? Did I exercise? And I could pick one or two life pillars to focus on that day, knowing if the wind blew on that day, I could stand on those pillars and not fall into the bottom of the well. And it's the same thing in business. And it's definitely the same thing in music. You don't have to have all your pillars solid. Maybe two of them, honestly. Two out of eight. That's not good by any percentage. But if you think of it that way and you actually can stabilize two, then maybe you can get most of them stable. And the more stable everything is, the easier it is to like maintain your sense of self and balance. When listening to you there, I just want to go back to the world crafting or world running that you also intend to do. Because you can take that to your world as well, right? Because your world is also built on all these different pillars, probably. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Was it a question, though? No, no, not really. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, as these things go. Because when you think about yourself as this kind of world runner, right? This person that has to run the world and build the world that you... And craft the world that you create for yourself and for everybody who's along for the ride, either by collecting or in another way. That's, again, a lot of pressure because it, it could be indefinite. How do you think about that? I feel like I've already lived multiple lives. I've lived in multiple cities. I've been married. I'm no longer married. I've really, I guess, I'm confident in my ability to change and accept the cycle of death that comes with life change. And I think you have to be comfortable with, like, absolutely losing really big things in your life or losing your life even to commit to anything. Nothing is permanent. It's unnatural to try to keep something the same. And I, I, think I that, want to interrupt you because I think this is one of the most important things that we need to think about in Web3 because a lot of these projects that started did say that you have now have lifetime access with this NFT and all of these kinds of things. But projects have to be able to die. And I don't know, this is something I think about a lot that nobody kind of Nobody designs for that. Nobody takes that into consideration. And it sounds now it sounds like you do, right? In the sense that you at least leave the option open. A few responses to that. First of all, Western society is dissociates from the reality that we are all going to die. And I don't think that makes your life easier to pretend like that's not going to happen. And so I think a lot of the anxiety we feel is because we're attached to things staying the same. We're attached to the life staying in your lane. The same thing with projects. When a project ends, it's catastrophic for certain people because they're anxiously attached to it. Now I'm here comes my therapist. But I think you have to set an expectation and you have to communicate. Like any relationship, I think the solid, the rock solid relationships that a creator can have with collectors are ones that are two-way where you communicate, where you're not afraid to say something, even if someone's not going to respond well. Like even today, I had my hands council meeting 
And we missed last week because I was sick. And I even had a little anxiety about that, but I was horribly ill. They didn't mind. But I, I went on a rant sort of at the beginning of the meeting, telling them all the things I'm working on in the back channels and why I'm not public about everything I'm doing. And I'm like, I'm working on the vinyl design and this granular thing and this and all these different things. And they're like, right, you're an artist. You're supposed to be doing that. You don't need to post everything that we know that you're doing this. And I really appreciate them for that because I get in my head about that type of thing. But I think it's because from the get-go, I communicated that this is going to ebb and flow. This is a natural project. I'm going to change. You're going to change. But what won't change is the fact that we were together at this moment in time and there's irrefutable proof of it on the blockchain. That's it. That's it. I think I really like this as like a closing point because it's beautiful to end on non-permanent. As we talk that everything must, must die. I also feel like it's so interesting because I've talked to a few founders and they have this idea of building this team and building this team forever. And, and I just, I know just from having the experience I have that nothing, nothing is permanent. And that's just reality. Life changes. And what's the saying? Make plans and life will laugh at you. That's how it works. So I love yeah. that, that mentality. And I like this idea of the collection might exist for a long time, but your relationship to it or your collector's relationship to it will definitely change. Yeah. And mm. I think that's like natural. Rocks. Like rocks. That's the only thing that doesn't seem to die. Like the rocks tell the story of the earth, just like songs tell the story of people. And I'm pointing to some rocks over there. I could point anywhere in the room and there'd be rocks. I promise. But they're millions or billions of years old. Don't worry. That we want to talk about Music Nerd? CXY, one of the founders of Music Nerd, would say the same thing. Music Nerd is a vibe. Honestly, our story is that we met because of NFT Seattle. There was no music planned for the event. And I was like, no, there's Web3 artists in Seattle. And we're a city. We have such a music legacy. How can we make something work? And I harassed Lennox, who's the founder, in the DMs until he got on a call with me. And CY and I basically put together like a music program and they gave us space to do some panels and do some performances. And it was awesome. And we just, we realized we work really well together. I love the way he thinks. I think he likes the way I think because we're still talking. But Music Nerd is trying to, it's not a platform. It's a, it's a culture. I think CY is a perfect example of a true supporter of music. The way that he perceives and values and invests in music is a way that both of us hope all music fans will have the ability to do. Whether it's in a fiscal way or not, obviously, to make music and to have a career, you need some people to fiscally invest. But I think CY is such a beautiful example of a music nerd. And just through having tons of calls and just we ideate together, I found myself becoming a music nerd and then finding other people who we're closeted music nerds, and now they're saying, I'm a music nerd because I love music. I want to support artists. I get technology. And so I think music nerd and the people around it and the sort of, I don't know, subtle culture we're trying to create and people we're trying to attract are just people who have shared values. And whether they themselves can invest in, in music or they want to find people who have that abundance, that's really what it's all about. And I think on the other side, in order to have a music nerd, you need to have a musician. 
But there's a specific type of musician who I think is really going to thrive, definitely in Web3, but in general, which is like a music innovator, like someone who loves music, but they also are down to experiment with ways of making and distributing the music to others. And so I think I've been music innovating in music, if you can say that, or at least I would like to. And now I'm a music nerd and CY is a music nerd. And so we're just trying to find more people like us and explore the ways that we can get this movement to people who may not know about it, but have those music obsessed values. Steph, I think you came out of the closet in December. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely came out as a music nerd. I definitely am a music nerd. 100% in all sense of the way. You know what? I don't know why I'm wearing this hat there. I literally had it on the counter. <laughs> That's <Nice>. music nerd. <laughs> Ray just moved from her Ray Isla hat to a music nerd hat. You yeah. have one as well, Steph. Yeah, I have a bucket hat, a pink bucket hat, which is amazing. Steph, you have the only pink bucket hat. Nobody else has. I, I think there might be a blue fuzzy bucket hat, but I don't think we made another pink one. Yeah. So. I love it. I love the pink one. I just love the logo is pink. So it just it felt like it needed to be pink. Yeah. It's a one of one. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. For a one of one, Steph. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Then I think we should start wrapping up. We always close off by asking for a music recommendation. Ray, what are you listening to? Or what is something you haven't heard in ages that you think people should be listening to? It's up to you. Great question. I hate this, but I'm going to say you have to go listen to Heartbreak Closer because it's not just me on the track. It's also one of my favorite artists and friends, Sammy Arriaga. So start there, but don't stop there. TK and Daniel Allen put out a really cool song on sound.xyz recently. You should check that out as well, especially if you want like summer vibes. And go listen to the song by Maya Friedman called Where the Rocks Are. It's great. Maya Friedman, Where the Rocks Are. We're all going to listen to it. Yep. And it's, I'm sure you're going to hang out with all these people, right? TK, Daniel, they're all in LA, yeah. To come here sing a songwriter night. They should. Obviously, when it's up and running, they will. I literally just got here. I should pump the brakes a little, but it has been nice to meet people IRL. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Ray. This was Martin and Steph talking to Ray Isla about a lot of things. It's too much to even put into a little summary at the end here. But we covered a lot of ground. Nothing is forever, except for rocks, which tell the story of the earth. Music tells the story of people, which is something that stuck by me. Ray, thank you very much for that. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you in the next one.